welcome to the Iditarod, a podcast about what else? The Iditarod, a production of Alaska Public Media and KNOM Radio and Nome. I'm your host, Josh Edge. The 2017 Iditarod is over. The Red Lantern has been awarded. But before we get too far into today's show, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Alieska Pipeline Service Company, celebrating 40 years of fueling the 49th state, is proud to support Iditarod coverage on Alaska Public Media. Well, like I mentioned, the race is done. It wrapped up last week with Cindy Abbott, who crossed beneath the Burled Arch in Nome Saturday afternoon. And along with that, I'm sorry to say that this is our last episode. It's all over, folks. In case you missed anything or want to listen back to our coverage of this year's race, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or you can listen on alaskapublic.org. As promised, our two trail reporters are back in Anchorage, and for the first time in weeks, we are actually back in the studio, all three of us together. Hello. We got Alaska Public Media's Zachariah Hughes, and of course, we can't forget KNOM Radio's Ben Matheson. Hey, guys. The monster of Minnesota, the Matheson. We made it. You two survived a couple weeks out on the trail. I survived a couple more weeks of sleeping in my own warm bed, subsisting off more than food that wasn't just six pounds of trail mix. Now, before we get into deep and listen to some of the stuff you two have prepared for us, I have to go out there. Any initial final thoughts on this year's race? Uh, Zach, let's start with you. I don't know. I'm still processing. <laughs> I don't know about how, how Ben is. Um, it was great. People kept asking me, um, did you survive? And I'd say, no, I thrived. And I thought it was great. And actually, um, compared to last year, at least, when it was my first time on the trail, this was comparatively easy and smooth. I think part of that had to do with the reroute and some of the uh, logistics that that brought with it. And and I'm curious to hear this from Ben, but I actually, I thought it was a rather subdued Iditarod. There were no big major catastrophes. There was some moderately bad, but just cold weather. Um, there were relatively few things to really uh, just kind of explode. So it, it felt like it was a, a pretty smooth affair. The whole race, I was waiting for that one moment where a blizzard throws the top three leaders into a mix and we've got the fourth place finisher who comes in and finishes or there's a terrible accident or there's whatever happens on the Iditarod. And I, maybe I'm still waiting for it. Yeah, there. I mean, there were an abnormally high number of dog deaths uh, this year. You can count it as four or five, depending on you know how you're grouping sort of accidents. Um, and, that, and that's much higher than in recent years that we've seen. Um, but you know, there there were no big scandals about how they occurred or how they were handled, and um, all things considered, it was it was a very kind of smooth, speedy race. And how about coverage? Was it as smooth and speedy as the race apparently was? I don't think I missed any major deadlines, and that was kind of one of the things I was thinking about quite a bit: is how do I get Wi-Fi? How do I get interviews? And how does this all come together? So I don't think I've missed those. I thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, it was a pleasure working with Ben. We were trying this new podcast, but it worked really well. I didn't get sick. We didn't miss deadlines. It went great. And 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 I should say, like, some of our colleagues at other media operations had rather major snafus with uh, planes and being able to get around. And if, thankfully, we kind of got skipped over on that bad luck. So I feel I feel really lucky. Still waiting for that bad luck to hit. <laughs> on your on your gonna <laughs> run into a moose on your bike ride home. That that almost happened downtown a couple days ago. Yeah, the real risk is when you get back to town. So let's get into some tape. As we mentioned several times throughout the race, throughout this podcast, when we do stories for radio, a lot of stuff gets left on the cutting room floor. 
And even though in this podcast we are able to include a lot more of that content, some pretty interesting stuff still managed to slip under the radar. Ben, let's start with you. You had a few segments for us to listen to, right? The metaphor I'm going to use is this is stuff that I put into my return bag from the checkpoints that I wanted to bring back. When I was in Huslia, I got a chance to speak with Jody Bailey, and it took a little bit. I had to wait a while. She was doing chores. I know she turned down one TV interview in the meantime, and I know she wanted, I know she wanted something slightly interesting. Fortunately, Zach had asked Jody before the race about her objective for the race, and she said to practice gratitude. So midway through the race, she's survived 40, 50 below temperatures and was taking her 24-hour break, and I asked her how she's experienced uh, that, that gratitude along the way. I was running into Huslia this morning, and I left Galena uh, yesterday evening, uh, got to see the sunset, and then this, I did my run, I camped out on the trail on the way here, and as I was coming in this morning, uh, there's a part where you're running through some birch trees on some beautiful trail, and there was a strip of red starting to appear where the sun was rising. And uh, I couldn't help but think to myself how spectacular it was to be out from sunset to sunrise with the dogs, especially because the um, one of my most favorite times of day is when uh, the day and night do battle for real estate in the sky. I think the colors are just spectacular, and I love watching the day turn to night and vice versa. So that would be a, the, the most recent example I've had is running in this morning and just thinking, you know, wow, how wonderful it was that I got to enjoy this at both ends. You know, that really reminds me of what Zach said, I think, and maybe it was our last episode together here before Zach and Ben went out on the trail talking about, you know, what he was thankful for, what he was most looking forward to. It was strangely reminiscent of, of what he said. I could never be as poetic as Jody Bailey, though, with, uh, you know, night and day doing battle in the sky. I think that's so beautiful. What else you got in your return bag, Matheson? As much as mushers can be poetic at moments and uh, really bring some of these extraordinary experiences to us, the listener, uh, they can also be utterly practical. And when I spoke with Dallas Seavey in Unilcleat, Dallas has a tendency to sometimes go into explainer mode, where he'll explain some small dimension of mushing in great detail. I noticed that his dogs were showing a little bit of diarrhea, and uh, I asked him about that. Did you guys run across any diarrhea on the trail? Hey, what do you mean by run across it? I'm just, I mean, looking, I'm looking, just at, looking, I'm looking at dogs' tails a little bit here. Yeah, I mean, you have some of that. You know, it really depends. And sometimes it's not necessarily always a bad thing either. Uh, I want to be careful saying that, but, you know, especially, I'll, I'll push the fat until we start to see loose stools if it's really cold out. Um, and also sometimes you feed them more fat than they should have, knowing that it will probably cause diarrhea because that's, that's what they're eating. And it's worth a little bit of diarrhea to, get, diarrhea to get the calories into them. If that's what they want to eat, you know what? Um, not to make it personal, but how many people have nice solid stools every single day? You know what I mean? So these guys need food. They need calories. And I'm gonna, if they're eating chicken skins and that's what they want to eat, I'll give them an extra couple hundred calories knowing that, yeah, it'll be a little loose. The st- harnesses will be a little messy, but they'll be better for it. So, Great. yeah. Thank you, Dallas. So there's different brands of diarrhea. <laughs> I'd love to do a whole interview on that, but All someday. Right. Someday, yeah. I, I, I still plan to do that interview someday. It's, it's a topic that's near and dear, and it's, it's an essential part of dog care is watching those stools and, and seeing what they mean. Really getting into the tough questions there. 
Man, and that just reminds me of when we were asking for listener questions, there were a, I don't know if I should be surprised, but I was, a surprising number of questions regarding poop, both for that of the dogs and for the mushers themselves, which... What do you think that says about our listeners? You know, most of them came from our colleagues. Mm. Utterly practical. <laughs> Public media takes you there. <laughs> All right, Ben, uh, I think you got one one more thing for us. One of the highlights of my time in Huslia was speaking with some dog mushers from the previous generation, including 77-year-old Wilson Sam. He's been working with dogs for over 70 years, well before the time that snow machines arrived in Huslia. And he's looking forward to the next generation of mushers. His grandkids are now the ones riding the runners. I did a story about this uh, over the course of the week. And the modern-day economics of dog mushing are, are tough. It's expensive to take care of dogs. The money in races isn't enormous. Sponsorship is hard to come by. And I was trying to tease out, if not working with dogs, just for the sake of working with dogs and racing dogs, what else do you learn? What else do young people learn from dogs? What did you, Wilson Sam, learn about mushing dogs? And here's what he said. Well, I think I learned a lot about living, you know, like uh, just being happy with the dogs and taking good care of the dogs. It's just like uh, taking care of your family or raising family. I always say that raising pups is just like raising kids. If you're rough with them, then they wouldn't do it. It'd be hard for you to train them. But uh, if you're good with them, they'll do what you want to do, want them to do. So it makes a big difference. Like back here in the yard, we could turn all the dogs loose and they wouldn't run away from us. Once we run, when we come back, we just turn them loose, and they're right there in the yard. And that was one thing that really impressed me from your guys' work out there and the interviews you sent back is all the historical aspects of the race and of mushing in general and all the historical figures you guys got to talk to out there. I know Zach sent in a couple really, really good interviews. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's uh, that was the perk of doing a podcast was that we had a vehicle and we had a space to have some of that Um one of the ideas with the podcast was there's just a lot of other cool stuff. And, and one of those this year for me was really having an opportunity to take some of those conversations that, you know, you have anyway with elders and kind of folks from around the, a lot of the communities down when you're waiting for mushers to come in or in the, the community halls. And to be able to share a little bit of that was um, it's just really heartening to know that there's um, a lot of curiosity and a lot of enthusiasm and support for that. So, uh, yeah, that was Ben. I really liked that. I'm sad I had to wait until just now to hear it. And it's really a bit of the story of the Iditarod where Joe Reddington Sr. was trying to keep the sled dog tradition alive across Alaska and keep those breeds strong. And every single year we get a chance to think about history, think about the future, think about trails, think about teams, think about competition and sportsmanship and sort of what it means to be a modern-day Alaskan. And I actually think I, I think the race, um, as it's gotten increasingly athletic and shorter and speedier and as a lot of the news coverage it sounds like has really sped up to accommodate that i think there's i think that's kind of lost in a lot of ways i think we focus a little too much on um, this race for number one and not as much about all the logistics and the interest and the intrigue and the passion that that keeps uh, the event at large really um, feasible so we covered a lot of ground over the course of these last few weeks about mushing and about iditarod but one thing we never really got to is once all those mushers, once all those dogs, you know, and the thousands of other people that are up there to watch, once everybody is in Nome, what happens? Uh, 
the magic begins. <laughs> I forget if we've talked about this. Both Ben and I got our starts in radio in Alaska in Nome, and so I feel like I won't speak for Ben, but I was just so happy when I got to Nome um, from White Mountain at the end of the race. And, and part of it is just Nome is just such a fantastic and wonderful community. And during Iditarod, there's plenty of weird and sordid stuff, but it also really comes alive. And it, it's just wonderful. <laughs> I could babble on and on about it. But there's also this really weird thing where this town of like 3,700 people becomes a, you know, almost like this spring break destination of the high north. And um, mushers are kind of rolling in consistently. And once they pass over the Burled Arch, they get led down uh, about a block um, to a dog parking lot behind uh, this little building in town, sort of squeezed down by the sea ice um, towards the port. And as it goes on and on and on, there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sled dogs that are, are kept out there. And mushers stay with host families, people who volunteer to put them up. A lot of mushers will stay with the same person year after year after year. And there's sort of, you know, imagine coming in Tuesday or Wednesday when you're one of the top of the pack and then all the time you have to kill until the musher banquet on Sunday. You know, you've just come off this really extreme days-long race and then suddenly you've got all this free time and just have to kind of go check on your dog every four or five hours. And Nome is small enough that everyone's kind of showing up to the same events. So you get reality TV show stars showing up at the same time as you know, Jeff King and Ali Zirkel came into the coffee shop one day when I was getting coffee. So everyone's in the same spot. Yeah, it's kind of weird to be like walking around to get your own lunch and then sitting next to you are these people that you've been like dying to talk to and report on for the last two weeks. So it at once it feels very, uh, you know, the opposite of celebrity <laughs> is happening around there. The other thing that happens is there's all these events and some of them are well-known and, and kind of tawdry. Um, you know, everybody asks, oh, did you go to the Wet Buns contest while you were there? And I was like, no, because that happens on Monday, and I was in Unilocleat. And there's a lot of stuff like that. But then there's also a lot of just, like, weird, beautiful, folksy, crafty, interesting things. You get open mic nights. I've seen Conway CV perform multiple times at open mic nights in the past. Somehow Hobo Jim is everywhere. The bard of Alaska just kind of singing his songs to whomever may come. You get the air raid sirens going off every few minutes to signal that the musher's coming into town. There's a craft fair where there's like some of the most beautiful art that you'll ever see coming out of Alaska. And it's just set up in a church and people are more than willing to let you try stuff on and talk about where it came from. And I also... Funnily enough, came away with a short radio package about all the weird stuff that happens uh, around Nome when you're up there. All right, no photos, no photos. In the very back of a long, crowded bar, an MC auctions off all kinds of random swag branded with liquor company logos. All right, we have a Budweiser poker set. Bidding starts at $15, and the MC is able to work it up a little bit higher. The whole auction lasts a while, and the point is to raise money for an annual event inside the Polar Bar, the Make Your Own Bikini Contest. A handful of contestants walk out of a back room, off a small stage, and down an improvised runway past the crowd. The outfits range from the haphazardly last minute to the impressively inventive. Ace in the hole! There's a dress made of playing cards, a bra fashioned out of two Red King crabs, and the winning contestant sports a two-piece ensemble from some kind of pelt. All right, let's go and be Identifox. The contest is like a lot of Iditarod Week in Nome, a mix of sordid and scandalous with crafty and community-minded. 
Visitors pour in to this bearing seaside hub of just under 4,000 people for a kind of subarctic spring break, a Cancun of the north. Restaurants, bars, and seemingly every spare bedroom are filled. Schools across the region are on vacation, allowing for athletes and families to travel in on discounted flights from surrounding communities for a big basketball tournament. Some of the annual nighttime events are known for racy debauchery, like the wet buns contest. Others are grittier, like the arm wrestling tournament at Breakers Bar, where two years ago, Ali Zirkel broke another competitor's arm. This year, Tara Sicatello, a handler who competed, says a similar thing happened in the women's middleweight contest, although not with Zirkel. As soon as they start to wrestle again, you just hear this popping noise, and the whole room goes silent. It was like a gunshot. And then we look, and the woman's arm is just hanging. Beyond the bars, beneath the season's expanding daylight, the region's unique culture and history are on full display. Snow machiners race along the sea ice to check crab pots. Rugged literary types listen to the poems of Robert Service, read aloud in a convention center. This year, the new Carrie M. McLean Museum, which opened just a few months ago, gave tours to more than 100 people by week's end. Uh, one of the favorite pieces in this uh, case is this engraved ivory drill bow at the top. Um, it's called a Patixioc in Bering Strait in Nupiak. Amy Phillips-Chan is the museum's director, and we're standing in front of old tools etched with scenes of walrus, whale, and seal harvests. Drill bows are really fascinating objects because Inupiaq was primarily a spoken language. So the older drill bows that were used and passed down um, among carvers were actually used as kind of demonic devices to record and then pass on oral traditions and stories. As the museum tour winds down, a crowd fills the library next door to listen to a talk by Iditarod champion Martin Boozer. Not far away, behind the snow dump, unrelenting wind is whipping up a ground storm around a bunch of sled dogs. It is really bad weather. <laughs> These aren't Iditarod dogs. They belong to local mushers who are clipping three-dog teams to little sleds for the Nome Kennel Club's businessmen's race. For a $150 entry fee, amateurs essentially hire someone else's dog team to race a three-mile loop. Ducking behind a truck for cover from the wind, Kirsten Bay says the 110-year-old kennel club aims to keep alive traditions of mushing, which most years includes putting on the businessmen's race. It's totally fun and sport. It's just to, it's to give people an opportunity to be a dog musher, to run a little team a few miles around a course and see what it's like. As the tiny teams take off, they're quickly swallowed by the murky swirl of snow. Spectators and supporters huddle by trucks in the parking lot, while just a few blocks away, back-of-the-pack Iditarodders keep arriving under Front Street's burled arch. In Nome, I'm Zachariah Hughes. All right. Now, Zach, I know you've been working on something else you've been rather secretive about since you've been back in the office this week. Would you care to elaborate, pull back the curtain? Yeah, yeah, I think the, the time is right. Um, so even though we're out at a lot of you know remote checkpoints and stuff like that, you know we're still online, Ben and I, checking email, checking social media. And one of the things on Twitter that was a big mainstay for me this time around was I did a Trump. This was an account, a parody account of the president, and uh, you know, all politics aside, it, it would really kind of was just esoterica and jokes about the Iditarod made in the voice of uh, the president over Twitter. 
And um, I, I have a couple of my favorites. Uh, I asked you guys for some of your favorites. Why don't we just um, read some of the I did a Trump tweets that we were most fond of. Still more alternative Iditarod facts. Iditarod is an Athabascan word meaning fake news. Hashtag make Iditarod great again, Myga. Your Leafsep Olsum is my favorite musher named after a Johnny Cash album recorded live in a Norwegian prison. Make Iditarod great again. One of my favorites was by my executive order, Who Let the Dogs Out is the new national anthem. It's much easier to sing. Mayor of Nome is a cabinet position. You can barter for drinks at the Board of Trade. <laughs> Seth Barnes is my favorite Iditarod musher, named after structures that can be built by Amish in one afternoon. Myga. Roger Lee scratched in Shaktulik to return to his day job, playing bass for Rush. Iditarod Checkpoint of Manly Hot Springs was named after me. This is my favorite. Alan Eichens is my favorite Iditarod musher, named after a morning zoo DJ from Akron. They're just, but they're like so weirdly specific and... Obviously, it was somebody that knew the Iditarod really, really, really well, but also that knew politics really well. And uh, did you guys ever wonder who it was? I wonder. I wondered a little bit. Well, you guys, I found out who I did a Trump is. Josh, pull up the audio file, Golden Goose. Alex? Hey, this is Zach. Uh, up in Alaska. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? To be honest, I'm I'm still pretty exhausted and playing a lot of catch up with uh, sleep and stuff. But that's a that's a good problem to have, I guess. Yeah, that's understandable. To just start out, can you just introduce yourself and say who you are and and what you do and just you know how you're a little bit of an Iditarod expert? Sure. Uh, my name is Alex Stein. I am a screenwriter, documentary filmmaker, and storyteller. I live in Los Angeles, California. I have been a huge Iditarod fan for about 15 years, going back to the Robert Sorley uh, Team Norway days. I had the idea that someone needed to be making a documentary about the race, focusing on stuff other than the actual competition. And that seemed like such an obvious idea to me that I assumed someone else must be doing it. So I didn't do anything about it for a couple of years. And then I realized no one was actually making that documentary and I really wanted to see it. So I decided that I would, I would make that documentary. Um, and I spent a couple years and made a movie named, uh, called Mush that premiered at the um, Anchorage International Film Festival a few years back. Got to know a whole bunch of different mushers and volunteers and race officials and learned exactly how much I didn't know about Iditarod and have been uh, have spent the last few years uh, co-hosting a uh, mushing radio show on Radio Free Palmer. Um, I think we have a, a similar sort of fascination with the event, maybe more so than the race. Yeah, as exciting as the stuff that goes on at the beginning of the, at the front of the race is and the competition and and, you know, the people who eventually win it, which, don't get me wrong, is very, is very cool and very exciting. My heart is always with the middle and the back of the Packers, as far as the mushers go, because those are the people who, in a lot of cases, they're only going to do this once or twice. And they have these, these big stories and these big reasons for wanting to run this race. And that is, in, in some ways, even more inspiring and even cooler 
than hearing about Mitch Seavey and Dallas and Jeff King and Ali Zirkel, although I could hear about those guys all, all day long. Tell me about how Idea Trump came about. Ah, <laughs> so I have a friend named Don Reardon, who is a great writer, wrote a book called The Raven's Gift and just has a new book that he co-wrote with Jimmy Settle called Never Quit. And uh, the, more, the evening before the restart in Fairbanks, he said to me, I think someone should do a parody Donald Trump Twitter account all about the Iditarod. And I think you should be the one to do it. And my first reaction was, I have too much to do. I can't, I can't take on anything else. I don't want to do this. This is, this is just silly. Um, and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, that's a really good idea. And I came up with a couple of things that, you know, would be appropriate tweets for such an account. And I thought about it for about an hour. And then I decided, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then first tweet I came up with was, I'm going to build a wall around the Iditarod Trail and make the Chihuahuas pay for it. And I thought that was a perfect kind of Donald Trump-esque take on Iditarod. I, I was at the time thinking, I'm never going to reveal that this is me doing it, or I'm not going to reveal it for a while. Um, and from the beginning, I thought, oh, this is a fun thing that I'm going to do. And this is something that you know, maybe there's only 50 or 100 people in the world who will get a kick out of this, but those 50 or 100 people will get a really big kick out of it. I got a really I, big kick out of it. I was in Fairbanks when I first saw it, and I thought it was hilarious. And then I can't tell you how many times I was at a checkpoint at 1 or 2 in the morning checking for any information that might have gone out and seeing just a machine gun of uh, I did a Trump tweets about, you know, so-and-so is the name of a so-and-so from a so-and-so. Yeah, and, you know, it, it very much was just stuff that amused me, and some of them were, I think some of them are really funny and, and stand up, and some of them were just, you know, things I thought of when I was checking the tracker at 2 in the morning. Do you have a favorite tweet? I think my favorite one was, uh, it just isn't, gee, how the hall-wing media is unfair to me. I think it was really funny. I really liked it. But I was also, we were wondering, you know, it's a relatively small world that I think knows about mushing and is following the Iditarod obsessively with following politics obsessively and then also on Twitter. So I, I feel like you've hit this very um, small but devoted tribe that for a week at least we were all in the same place. Well, you know, that, that makes me really, really happy. Um, can you tell me the story about uh, getting married above the Arctic Circle? Yeah, so uh, I, I think I can tell you this because I'm pretty sure that the statute of limitations has you know, expired by now. But uh, my wife and I were married in Coldfoot, Alaska, up on the Hall Road. And although I think technically, and actually not technically, literally you are not supposed to take rental cars up there, we we decided it wasn't that big a deal and took a rental car up on the hall road because we're we're stupid and we were much more lucky than than skillful and we had fallen in love with alaska from seeing pictures and talking to people who'd been there and we discovered uh before we went that in alaska which i'm sure you and your listeners know any adult resident of the state can perform marriages as long as you specify them as a marriage commissioner when you fill out the paperwork so we knew that we were going up the hall road, and we called uh, Jan Thacker, 
who at the time owned Coldfoot. This was after uh, Dick Mackey owned it. And we said, we're, we're coming up there, and we want to get married, and uh, we hear that anyone in Alaska can perform marriages, so would you be willing to do this? And she said, well, I'll get my husband to do it. So we were married in Coldfoot, Alaska, in the bar by the bartender. Uh, Alex, I can't tell you how I've had a smile on my face this entire interview, and it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for letting me call and interview you. and. Um, for all the chuckles late at night on the at checkpoints the last two weeks. Well, I very much appreciate it, and uh, and really have enjoyed the I did a pod all throughout this race. And uh, you know, you guys are just doing wonderful work, and I look forward to uh, more of it next year. And and I'm sure that there are other things, non Iditarod things, you do on the radio as well. A couple every once in a while, but okay, I'm gonna let you go. But thanks so much, and uh, yeah, be well. Thank you so much, Zach. Take care. You guys, we made some friends with this podcast. Yes, we did. We made quite a few. Friends in Coldfoot. I, I never would have expected... Well, he actually, he lives in Los Angeles, California now. Friends but... in Coldfoot. <laughs> <laughs> I never would have guessed California. I was sure but... I was sure that Identa Trump was in Alaska. In fact, I was very sure who it was, but uh, wrong. Very wrong. Care to share who you're... No. In... How about you, Josh? You weren't on the trail, but you're still keeping tabs at everything. What's sticking, what's sticking with you? What, what are you coming away with this with? Well, there there were definitely a couple things that stood out, not necessarily stuff directly from the race, but just the other aspects of I did a rod and I did a pod, things kind of specific to what was going on here in the studio. I, I pulled some tape. Some of it you've heard. Some of it you haven't. Here's the first two kind of rapid fire. We've dreamed of being the bacon checkpoint. I have done some experimenting with this in, in a, my few free moments in some past Iditarods. Um, I think we would need some sort of bacon corporate sponsorship from one of the major bacon manufacturers. Because we're not just talking about the standard ration of bacon that Iditarod ships out here as part of the human food. I'm talking, you know, like pallets of bacon prepared in a variety of ways in sandwich form, just straight up bacon. Um, super deep fried bacon like the like North Pole explorers might take like the real high calorie stuff I want a variety of bacon a cavalcade of bacon and how could you forget this is a reporter's notebook called uh, snack attack with Zach and Ben Matheson so you probably noticed they're kind of along the same line food and I have to say, I think cavalcade of bacon is probably the best phrase that I heard in all of the hours of tape that I listened to over the last few weeks. Definitely like a good indie rock band name circa like 2005. It's like avalanche or like tsunami of bacon. Uh, but like it's not. It's more it's a cavalcade. And anybody who is that passionate about bacon, that that's someone I can get behind. Tim, Tim Bodoni and Galena is just the best Thank you, Tim Bodoni, for all you do and all you are and for letting me sleep on the floor of the KIYU radio station twice. And the other thing that really stood out just from putting this podcast together is just how far-reaching the Iditarod really is. Uh, early on in the podcast here in like the first couple days of the race, there was a fourth-grade teacher in Wisconsin that reached out to us uh, to us three, I think, at I Did a Pod, uh, she'd been listening to it. Her class was putting together their own podcast, which is actually longer running than this one. Her name is Felicity Trepto. Her class's podcast is called I Kid a Pod. 
And I thought we had a good one if I did a pod, but it just doesn't. You just can't. No, nothing. Nothing tops I kid a pod. Shout out to all the fourth graders in Wisconsin who have contributed to I kid a pod. I wish that my fourth grade class would have done an in-depth unit on I did a rod. I'm just jealous. And some of the stuff they were getting into sound like very, very Matheson stuff, numbers, analytical stuff that I wouldn't even. Ben Matheson is himself just one big number. He's number one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I talked to her for about 45 minutes on the phone here. Only maybe like three or four minutes of that even made it into that episode of the podcast. I just couldn't get over just how stoked she was about the race, our podcast, and just her experience with everybody she dealt with up in Alaska, whether it's, you know, us reporters or mushers or whoever. Here's just a quick piece of audio uh, about that. All my contacts with anyone in Alaska, I've been so impressed with just how genuine and, and kind everyone has been and the mushers themselves. I mean, they're great role models. You know, I, I don't have to worry about airing an interview with a musher in front of my students. I also think the event just is a, such a demonstration of grit and perseverance, which is something we talk about all the time in here, how important that is, as well as that whole team aspect, you know, working together, whether it's the dogs who are working together or, you know, the mushers or, or whatever. So I just feel like there's just value in that event. I'm just glad we we're all able to apparently behave ourselves. <laughs> There's a segment on um, NPR Politics, the podcast, which we got some help really early on from their producer, uh, Brent, over there, who gave us some tips. But they have a segment called Can't Let It Go, where everybody you know shares one thing that just has kind of stuck with them from the week. And I thought it would be fun if we went around and did a Can't Let It Go. I did a pod. I did a rod. I'll go first since I sprung this on you guys. After the race was over, Hugh Neff... Uh, who, you know, you remember from some episodes, Ben interviewed him. Hugh Neff got married on the sea ice, and the wedding was officiated by uh, Gnome's very wonderful and eccentric mayor, Richard Benville. So that's what I can't let go. It's a little bit like peak Iditarod, peak Gnome right there. Yeah, he was wearing, a, I believe, a sealskin vest in the pictures that I saw. All right, you guys, you got one? I'm so glad that we're introducing a new recurring segment in our last episode. <laughs> I can't let go of the fact that while we're trying to get some closure and some decompression, these Iditarod mushers live and breathe and think dogs 24-7. Some guys live in wall tents, live in yurts, and training's underway. There's there's race schedules that are being written right now for the 2018 race. It's a full-on, 100% mental and physical commitment. And kind of like the, the tape that I pulled, the thing I can't let go of is not so much race related is that we actually pulled this off uh honestly i was coming into this week like talking very confidently to our boss like yeah we can do this no problem no big deal we've got this we'll do all our regular stuff not an issue yes and and then zach and ben left i was here on my own in the morning no idea what was going on and how i was going to make this work but here we are, two weeks later. We're all still here. We didn't just survive. We thrived, you guys. I had no doubts. I, I knew it would come together. <laughs> I think they made one of us. 
I just there's I just feel an incredible debt of gratitude to so many people. I mean, everybody that helped us along the way and let us crash on their couches and floors and gave us food and helped us and our bosses for letting us try this and pull it off. And everybody at Alaska Public Media and KNOM who really had our backs and put in extra work to make sure that this could happen. But also to all of the people who sent in questions, who sent us unsolicited emails. It was really wonderful to be able to feel like people were hearing this and, and benefiting from it. And so I just feel a, a huge debt of gratitude to the people that went out of their way to show us some appreciation. I was super excited to be able to tap into the knowledge from reporters past. Uh, thank you so much to my friends and mentors, Lorelai Ivanov, Matthew Smith, Emily Schwing, Paul Korchin, and uh, thank you, Libby Casey, for responding to my email. Wait, you sent an email to Libby Casey? Of course I sent an email to Libby Casey. Did she write back? Yes. What'd she say? We were trying to figure out the Southern Route logistics, and it was kind of a moot point. Well, guys, I think that about wraps it up. Thanks so much, guys, for joining me. And as Zach said, thanks to all of you who have been listening to us over the last few weeks, really over the last couple of months at this point, especially for those who took the time to send us your questions. You really helped take the show to that next level. We weren't really sure if it was going to work when we were... Uh, started asking for questions, but you far exceeded our expectations coming into it. It's been awesome. I know from our end, it's been a lot of fun to put together. So if you have been joining us throughout the race, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to either leave a review on iTunes or just shoot us an email at Iditarod at alaskapublic.org and just let us know what you thought of the podcast. Our theme music is by the band Sassafras. And one last time, I'm Josh Edge. Goodbye. 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 Josh. Josh. Hey, Josh. Josh. Pick hey, up, Josh. 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 Pick, up your, pick up your phone. Pick up the phone, Josh. 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 I, think I still have that voicemail on my phone. <laughs> Josh. Yeah. It's like, God, I go to sleep for 15 minutes and... Hey, Josh. Hey, Josh. And then I call you back and that's all I get for about the first 45 seconds of the phone call. I'm like, what do you want?